0: Hello, welcome to Kelly J's podcast which makes me talk about myself in the third person so it's quite odd, excuse the title. Uh, easily identifiable though so I thought it would help us all. This episode I'm talking to Brett Weinstein, he is an American biologist and evolutionary theorist who came to national attention during the 2017 Evergreen State College protests. Here are some that you can hear now. Um, he's considered a member of the informal group of personalities known as the intellectual dark web. Um, I think it's fair to say what happened at Evergreen should be a stark warning to all of us that none of us are safe, no matter how progressive or liberal we may think we are. I would implore you to look up Evergreen State College protests, uh, read about it, learn about it, and be fair-warned. As always, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Uh, I am told if you leave a review, it does something magic uh, and assists people finding this channel. But for now, do enjoy this 27th episode of the podcast. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I was um, delighted that you agreed.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Good, good. Um, so uh, most people who watch my channel will be really familiar with uh, what's happened to you. Um, <clears throat> I would imagine the overlap is is quite a lot between uh, the huge number of people that watch you and the, the relatively few people who know who I am. Um, but for those that don't, could you give a, a brief uh, idea about how you came to prominence um, so, what was the day of absence and how you ultimately got cancelled?
1: Sure. Uh, so, I'm an evolutionary biologist and I was teaching at a, um, a radical college in the Pacific Northwest here in the U.S. called Evergreen. And uh, I had a very uh, wonderful teaching life there. It was a very unusual place. My wife and I were both professors and uh, popular ones at that. And we had a large number of very dedicated students who bounced back and forth between our programs and uh, took courses when we taught together, things like that. So it was an ideal, if obscure, existence. In 2016, the college under the direction of a new president, George Bridges, started to advance equity and inclusion proposals. A committee was formed, hand-picked, by the the president, and these proposals created a hazard to the college and its ability to continue, which uh, my wife and I both found alarming. I should say many people will know my wife, Heather Hying. Um, The proposals were a danger to the college, and it was my obligation as a faculty member to point that out. So I did, and this made me a target at first of faculty members who were on the march. And then on May 23rd of 2017, uh, 50 students that I'd never met showed up in my class and demanded my firing or resignation. They were responding, they said, to a stance that I had taken against something called the Day of Absence. Now, Day of Absence had been a tradition at the college since its founding almost in the early 70s. And in a traditional year, it involved Uh, At first, it was black student staff and faculty, later it became student staff and faculty of color, who would absent themselves from the college for one day to emphasize the role that they were playing. It was never a big deal in my quadrant of the college. I was teaching in the sciences, and I do not recall in my 14 years of teaching at the college, a single student of mine that was ever absent because of day of absence, but nonetheless, it was an annual tradition. In 2017, it was announced that white people should not come to campus, and the administration joined in the call, and I found this very alarming. Evergreen is a public college, which means that free speech rights are protected, and to have a public college, that is to say, a governmental-run institution asking people not to show up on campus on the basis of their skin color, violated all of the values on which not only the college, but the nation was founded on. So um, I objected, and I said that this was effectively a show of force, and that I intended to be on campus that day. Um, So the students who showed up at my class on May 23rd said that this was an act of racism, my opposition to this day of segregation, and demanded my firing. The protest uh, was filmed by them, they uploaded it to Facebook, someone else moved it to YouTube and it went viral. The protests turned into riots. They took over the campus. The president of the college stood the police down. Students started roving the campus in what they called community patrols armed with baseball bats. They were harassing and bullying people. And uh, the whole event was, so colorful that people couldn 't look away, and I became well known by virtue of people seeing that this uh, this protest that became riots was targeted at me at least initially, and that that didn 't make sense to them because the allegation that I was a racist simply uh, seemed to find no evidence in support
0: yeah quite yeah, you did become quite a uh, sensation um, when did you know or were there any signs sort of retrospectively that that they would eventually
1: come for biology? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, my wife and I had been battling against postmodernism since we were in college. So there was always this question about the conflict between a rigorous analysis of the complex thing that is humanity and the simplistic and uh, counter-analytical... narrative that was developed in what was at first postmodernism and then later became critical theory. Um, But as for evidence of it within the college environment, I would say it was on the march longer than we were aware of it. It became clear in the last year and a half of our being at the college that something was afoot and that effectively we were on a collision course because the things that we stood for and what we were teaching in our classrooms was in direct conflict with this uh, this other narrative. And increasingly, they were intent on stamping out anything that did not agree with their approach.
0: Mm. And do you think, so I have a, a friend who's a professor in Canada, uh, evolutionary biologist, and he sort of said that He felt that he was under attack from people who were creationists, who then did his course. And so he was sort of forewarned uh, by an older crop of people that wanted to change what you were allowed to talk about in class. Did you ever experience anything before this this latest sort of wokeness?
1: Yes and no. I would say there were hints of it, but uh, Heather and I were so well-liked and well-regarded by our students that it never really got a foothold. So it's not to say that people didn't occasionally raise questions, but they were relatively easily dealt with because we had a large community of people that was much more interested in learning the deep truth of evolutionary biology and the complex picture that it painted um, and weren't interested in having it shut down for yet another uh, iteration of the social justice ideological Worldview. So, um, you know, maybe it's important to point out that when I say that Evergreen was a radical college, it's true that it was politically radical, but it was also structurally radical and that this changed the internal dynamic. Evergreen had a system that we called programs instead of courses. And a program was full-time for both professors and students. Professors taught one program at a time, students took one program at a time, and it could go on for a full year. And what that meant was that the contact between professors and students was intense and long-term. I knew everybody by name by the end of the first week of class and I came to understand the details of their lives and they understood the details of mine. And what this meant was that there was a personal dimension to teaching that uh, allowed students to be protective of what they saw as in their interest. So inside of the classroom, this was a, almost a non-issue. The fact that what came at us came from outside of our classrooms and was headed by students that we'd never met is really a crucial fact. There was a yeah. very powerful movement, but it was at a distance until it decided to come for us.
0: So on that basis then, was there, in the progressive sort of radical college, do you think that the boundaries that were broken in all courses, so I'm assuming all the programmes had similar sort of relationships and dynamics that you may have had with your students, I'm not saying they would have been as good, but do you think those boundaries being eroded, do you think that assisted the, the mob and the attack? For you? Do you think that that the authority that that was sort of broken somewhat?
1: That's a wonderful and deep question and and I'll I'll get to the answer in a second, but I do want to point out one thing because uh, I do think Evergreen had something very right in its teaching model and something that I hope that other institutions will learn from, but it also clearly had something very wrong. The freedom that was carved out by the founders of the college was a, a paradise if you were interested in pushing pedagogy to its limits, figuring out what was possible in that, uh, in that institution that couldn't have been done in a college where you taught four credits at a time. And my wife and I did this, and that's why our courses were popular. And there were others who did this as well. But by the time that Heather and I got to Evergreen, it was definitely a minority of the faculty. Most people arrive at the college with no understanding of what's possible And this creates understandably a certain amount of fear. You know, you're given a blank canvas and you're told to paint something interesting. And so most people ended up painting something very conventional. They effectively reinvented a regular college inside of this very different landscape. And so there was a divide between those faculty that understood the importance of this freedom and utilized it and those faculty that didn't. And in some sense, that's part of what went wrong. Because in the quadrant of the college where people were not using this freedom to, to good effect, they used it for other things. And one of the things they used it for was indoctrination. And that indoctrination is obviously the core of this uh, social justice meltdown that we saw. And in some sense, maybe what happened is it came to evergreen earlier than it arrived other places and more intensely than it arrived in other places because that freedom allowed it to be amplified in different ways.
0: Right. So if everybody's motive had remained pure for want of a better word and that they really wanted to get to a place in their learning and teaching, then it could have survived.
1: Well, you know, for many years, Heather and I were trying to alert the college to the problem that it had structurally and to suggest a mechanism by which it could be fixed, Um, and really without getting too deeply into the internal workings of the college. What needed to happen was Evergreen needed to bring faculty in for a period of time, like three years, and figure out whether a given faculty member could figure out what to do with the freedom And if you could in three years, figure out how to run really interesting dynamic programs, then you should stay. And if you couldn't, then it wasn't the place for you. And that's not what happened. Evergreen had a system in which it brought people in and then had a very hard time getting rid of them, even if what they produced in the classroom wasn't high quality. So there was a lot of dead wood on the faculty. Um, That said, it's an easily solved problem if you were to start with a fresh sheet of paper and the whole thing could have been avoided. But I don't think, you know, it's really a matter of good faculty who lost their way. I think it's a matter of, you know, freedom is a double-edged sword and a system that just simply applies it universally and doesn't think about its consequences is is destined to run into something like
0: this. Yeah. And inept people inevitably always sort of shield their lack of skill with power and play and... And cover their backside somewhat. Yeah,
1: I agree. There was there was an awful lot of that.
0: <laughs> um, so the progressive politics took hold at, at Evergreen, uh, like it has everywhere else. Um, can it can it be taken out? Can it can it be uh, separated again, or is, is the cake too baked?
1: That's a great question. You're talking about at Evergreen or are you, are you asking more broadly? Just
0: generally. I think it's, you know, my kids are school age and and they've been worried all week about having trans awareness talks <laughs> in their assemblies because obviously what I do and I won't be having any of it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It, it seems to have, have caught even the most uh, conservative uh, religious schools in this country. So I'm just wondering if, if you think it can be pulled
1: out? Well, you know, don't forget I'm an evolutionary biologist and I see <laughs> a couple of ways that this could happen. It could either happen through a process of adaptation where superior ideas outcompete worse ideas. I see that as unlikely at the moment. What's more likely is that the buffoonery is going to cause the systems that embrace it to collapse, leaving whatever was most resistant and, um, that is effectively inevitable. Now, the problem is that these systems that are going to collapse are connected to everything important, and so what they will take out with them is uh, a frightening question. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, if all of the universities in the West embrace this absurd ideology and they start overwriting analysis with social justice, then they will cause all of those institutions to be feeble in their product. They will produce inferior engineers and uh, lawyers and everything else. And all of the systems that depend on these people being sharp will collapse, which will create a power vacuum in the world that will be filled by uh, who knows which international antagonists. But it's not going to be a win for justice it's going to be a win for whoever can stand aside and take advantage of the collapse.
0: Mm. Do you think, I asked Gad sad this and he disagrees with me, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, Do you think the vacuum left by religion is, has been replaced with this new sort of dogmatic belief? Do you think if we, I'm a gold star atheist, so I've never had any religion whatsoever, But I just wonder if the lack of organized religion, the lack of common purpose of something outside of ourselves, which I think is probably part of the human psyche, uh, do you think that's why we've replaced it with raging narcissism or narcissistic tendencies of inward-looking?
1: Well, it's a complex question. I think there's something deep here. There's definitely a component of truth in there. Um, I'm, you know... I'm concerned that the analysis has to be done with a great deal of nuance and subtlety in order to get it just right. That painting with a broad brush is, uh, you know, is good for a first pass. But uh, what I frequently get pushback on from my scientific colleagues is the idea that a, what, what you're calling a religious mindset actually has legitimacy, even in science. It's even required, but the idea is to minimize it, right? So um, I make the claim that it is impossible to do science uh, and completely eliminate faith from the process. So for example, um, one has to have faith that you do exist and have access to the universe. And it's not guaranteed that that's true, right? There's no way to prove that you aren't uh, in a simulation or a brain in a jar being fed data to see what it will come up with, right? You can't prove that that's not happening. You can't prove that you're not a schizophrenic experiencing very compelling hallucinations. Mm. But in order to do science, you have to assume that's not happening. You have to assume you are what you think you are and you have access to the universe as you think you do. There's a small amount of faith. So my point would be that if we take that example, right? That nugget of faith at the very bottom of a robust, rigorous scientific ladder of understanding. And then we move up and we say, well, there are actually lots of places where we have to do that, where there's something we don't understand. And we have to have faith that there is something to be understood in the gap. And what one substitutes for understanding in those cases temporarily is also functions as a kind of Maybe faith isn't the right word, but suspension of disbelief, something along these lines, and very often these gaps get filled in. So as I've argued elsewhere, there's a very good reason that stories that we now understand to be literally false actually spread and are closely associated with human success, historically speaking. Um, The because of that, one would expect the human mind to be amenable to such stories, right? Because if they are part of human, human flourishing, then the ability to take them on is also part of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And the question is, when we get so good at understanding what our universe is made of and how it functions, that these false stories are no longer necessary, does the part of the mind that seeks them or accepts them seek something else? And does social justice ideology, for example, fill that uh, cognitive niche? And I think, yes, to some degree, that's what's going on. Um, The question is, what should we be seeking in its stead? Do we have a uh, spiritual need that has to be met in order for us not to be susceptible to these preposterous claims?
0: Well, that's yeah. Do we? Well, what do you think? Do do we do we need? Is the fact that humans through history and in all parts of the world have created stories, and now we don't have those the requirement for those stories? Um, I guess it has to play a small part, doesn't it? In in what we've replaced it with.
1: Well. You know, unfortunately, many of the things that I think are necessary to the solution are not rapid. There's a solution to this that involves a couple of generations of work. And, you know, as somebody who lives in a world that I believe has no real gaps in its mechanistic explanation, that is to say if we last long enough, we will ultimately understand how everything works from the level of quarks and below up to the level of civilizations, galaxies, everything else. There's no, uh, I don't think there's any, um, what would be called hard emergence in there, right? But we don't know those explanations now. Mm -hmm. And what is it like to live with the expectation that everything could in principle be explained and not to have those explanations. Well, it involves figuring out how to hold the spackle that fills the gaps without embracing it uh, at a deep level. And it also involves the ability to live as a human being, knowing the explanation for certain things, but not operating on its basis. So for example, the, the centrality of, Reproduction to human motivation is quite easy to to understand evolutionarily. If one attempts to live their life by operating this program and thinking constantly in reproductive terms, right, then even the most fundamental and desirable aspects of life become impossible. Right, mm. you need you need to sort of sign up for. Uh, the ability to fall in love and not constantly be thinking, oh, love is a trick, a cognitive trick being played by my mind on the basis of an evolutionary goal that really is my objective. If you do that, then you'll ruin your life. So somehow those of us who do understand something at a deep level don't necessarily operate on that basis On a day-to-day interpersonal level and that trick has to be something that is made available to people so they don't have to embrace the false stories more deeply than necessary in order to be good to each other.
0: Mm. Um, Another theme I I think uh, with this whole Um, Woke is so overused and I really don't like the word anymore, but uh, there's a professor called Sarah-Jane Blakemore and she talks about adolescence now taking, being a really long time and it ends when you become uh, responsible. So it might be home ownership, it might be becoming a parent, might be uh, having a significant sort of relationship, adult relationship. And kids now, um, they don't seem to be getting there very fast. Uh, certainly into their late 20s sometimes, uh, maybe their jobs, job markets are quite small, housing is really difficult, um, and just generally speaking, like kids aren't learning to drive in this country so readily, or even having sort of sex and relationships, or even drinking, which obviously as a British teenager is a, is a rite of passage. Um, do you think that also feeds into this sort of extended childhood is a reason why... These people did feel that they could attack you and stand outside of your and inside your classroom and say the sort of things they said to you?
1: Well, I'm going to be less gentle about it. I I think there is a massive wave of infantilization, and that effectively what we're seeing is an epidemic of learned helplessness. And in some sense, I will go farther than to say it's an extension of adolescence. I will say, for whatever reason and through whatever mechanisms there seems to be a drought of adults very few people seem to cross the threshold and become actually adult in mindset and you know we can pursue the various reasons that that might be the case but that it is the case seems increasingly clear
0: yeah, it's it's peculiar i do often sort of just think where are where are the gro- where are the grown ups um because I mean, I speak quite plainly, and so I'm seen as unkind. Whereas, like years ago, there were plenty of women just like me talking too much in a greengrocer's queue (laughs) and telling everyone what they thought of the world. And now I think if you did that, you'd probably uh, end up being cancelled. Someone would call your place of work and tell on you.
1: Well, yes, that will happen. It's also, I'm quite certain, and from personal experience, um, I will tell you, it is a skill that one can learn. And I actually think you you have this skill that, yes, there are lots of things that you can say that if uh, someone were to hear you and say, oh, I guess that's something that can be said, and they were to try it, it wouldn't work for them because you've learned how to say it. And I've done the same, and there are many others. But um, yeah, we are, we are living in an environment in which... Um, it is not apparent to most people how certain things must be said in order to get them past the censors. And I wish there were more people working on that puzzle rather than just remarking on the fact that cancellation seems to be everywhere.
0: Mm. I mean I did it by marrying a man that goes to work and I don't have a job. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't hard think that's <laughs> it's not quite so easy for the people, and then my, you know, my kids have it, and I. So I've got uh, two teenage boys, a teenage girl, and a twelve-year-old boy, and they are they they beginning not to do it. They don't join in. They they um. I sort of said it's not a hell that you should die on. So if you don't agree with something that everybody else is saying, you don't have to come out and say that you don't agree. But I I certainly wouldn't go along with something because I think. I think it's a, it's a quick route to madness if you constantly just have to misrepresent what you think just in case everybody doesn't like you.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, I have two kids as well, and um, knowing what to tell them on this topic is not simple because on the one hand, one absolutely does not want to to lead a child to stand up for the truth anywhere that something else is spoken and be so instantly canceled that they never make an impact in the world. On the other hand, um, one does not want to induce their child to take on the obligation to sit quietly and not point out dangerous nonsense as it spreads across the landscape. So there's a pick your battles message that unfortunately is naturally the stuff of adulthood, but is necessary now for kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, probably that's a topic that we ought to talk about more broadly in civilization, because all of those of us who understand the danger of what's happening and have children, either our own or other kids we may have to advise, are going to face this.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the silence is violence um, uh, bullying that goes on, I think, is is really difficult for kids. three of my children talked about uh, how they really didn't want to put a black square up because they felt that that was what they were expected to do and they didn't really want to go along with it. But by not going along with it, people noticed. And I, I've got friends who were sort of emerging in the um, entertainment circuit and they said if they didn't do something, what they did is they just pretended their mother was ill and they came off social media for a week because otherwise... They, they just didn't know how
1: they'd handle the questions. Yep. One needs uh, industrial strength weaponry to fight this stuff. And it's not surprising that kids don't have it. And what's appalling is that we haven't kept them out of the fray, right? That we are allowing this to infect schools. And we are allowing one group of kids to bully another with this stuff is beyond insane. And mm. th- there will be a huge price to pay for us allowing that to happen
0: well when i was a little girl so i'm in my mid mid to late 40s i'm 46 and when i was at school we weren't teachers weren't allowed to have opinions um as and if they did they had to mask them whereas uh, during the election uh, the presidential election um which i understand is not over yet um in my kids schools teachers were sort of saying lots of things about how incredible it was going to be that Biden wins. Now, whether or not I agree with them is, is not really the point. Um, the whole class was sort of che- cheering. And I just thought, well, what if your dad, what if you're you at that school and your, your parents are Republicans? I mean, what a horrible place and environment to, to be in.
1: Even, even if not, it's an appalling development. Just the simple fact of giving kids the message that A, that this was clear that one side was good because the other side was bad, and therefore uh, it is obvious, and one should be able to say to a room full of people the obvious that a Biden win is a victory for uh, for the right side I mean that is that 's the death of democracy, mm. and in this case, you know that would be true even if it were the case, even if you did yeah. have a good candidate defeating a bad candidate, there would still be the necessity to check in with the question of, is there something I'm not seeing? Are the people on the other side aware of something that I don't know? But in this case, you had two appalling options, (laughs) right? The idea that anybody was happy about the result of this election, whichever way it went, is um, an indicator that something has gone very seriously off the rails.
0: But even saying that, so I've been saying a few things about Biden and that's automatically seen as I'm some champion for Trump which I am very clearly not. I think both men were a duff choice and I can't imagine what the Democrats were thinking uh, to put Biden up, to be fair. But if if we, so moving to the American election, then nice, nicely segued in. If we consider uh, the left and right as part of the same pendulum, to what extent do you think each are to blame for the current division in the United States? Um, I mean, is it, are we just so way past party politics that we're just into plain right and wrong now?
1: Well, I've been watching the U.S. political situation for decades, and I just think people misunderstand what story they're watching, right? This is a story of rampant political corruption, right? That rampant political corruption has frozen Americans out of the well-being that is produced by their labor in our incredibly dynamic economic system. So having been frozen out, they are frustrated, but most of them don't know exactly what they're frustrated by. They know that what is supposed to happen doesn't and that things are desperately unfair, but they don't understand the deep cause in part because the deep cause is so painfully boring that nobody can pay attention to the story. The details of how money corrupts our system are just not, there a snore. So what we've got is people lashing out in incoherent ways. We've got some, the left lashing out in the street against rampant white supremacy that actually is not rampant. And we have people on the right embracing uh, QAnon and other preposterous nonsense. And the problem is, if you understand that the system's corruption generated Trump that Trump is a symptom of people on one side being fed up and actually succeeding in upending the power structure in their party. Trump was a true true outsider, and he uh, he functioned as an insurgent and won. Bernie Sanders almost won as an insurgent in 2016 on the Democratic side, and that this is evidence that people are fed up and they're trying to break into the system and throw some different levers. But they are then responsive to the narrative that is deployed during these elections in the general election after the real game is already already won. they are responsive to this you know which guy is somebody you'd rather have a beer with dynamic and they're just they're missing the game. The fact is we lost the election long before uh, November, and people have to recognize that that's what's going on, and they have to actually Uh, step outside of the division that has been set up for them, right? In other words, part of the reason that the U.S. is so fiercely divided is that our division is necessary for the influence peddlers to continue with their racket for another uh, election cycle. And I I wish more people understood that.
0: It's really odd. I've got a friend who lives in California, and during the... um, Peaceful riots, the virtuous vandalism, and the very kind killings that were happening. She was talking about going and joining the protests. So wasn't it great? She's a white British woman. Wasn't it great? And uh, the police violence is so terrible since Trump got in. And you know, you sort of say, well, what was it when during Obama's like last four years? Was it was it any different? Has it got worse? Is it demonstrably worse? Um, which obviously was again me defending Trump. Um, but then when the election was coming, she said, oh, everywhere's boarded up because Trump, if Trump loses, there's going to be riots. And obviously they haven't happened yet. I'm not saying that maybe come January, uh, there won't be some hefty <laughs> civil war on the horizon. But she still can't see the two things that she's been saying, neither of which are true.
1: Yes, sir." I I run into this all the time, and you know, it's, I have to say, especially pernicious uh, on the blue team, where the blue team just simply cannot see past what it fears on the red team. And it's not necessarily wrong about what it sees on the red side. What it doesn't understand is that the problem is so bad on the blue side, that reasonable people can reach different conclusions about which of these things is less awful. And so Mm. there, you know, so I have this principle that I like, I should probably come up with a name for it. But the principle is, it is irrational to hold people responsible for making bad choices, if they only had bad choices on the menu. Right. And so I constantly feel like I'm being held responsible for making a bad choice, which I freely admit is a bad choice, um, because people do not appreciate that I didn't have any good choices. That's why I made a bad choice. It's not that I'm a bad choice-making guy. It's that I need to have a good choice before you can expect me to, to do it. And so, yes, if, you, you know, if you're going to ask the question, is Trump bad? Yeah, terrible, right? <laughs> if that's the sum total of the story you understand, then you'll see everybody who didn't vote for Biden as, uh, as a problem. And, you know, I didn't vote for mm-hmm. Trump but I also didn't vote for Biden. And, you know, I'll be quite clear, as I've said elsewhere, I'm not sure which outcome is more frightening. They're both, they're both horrifying. And um, in any case, now could I be wrong about that? Sure. I could be wrong about that. But the question is, is there anybody in a position to say, actually you are wrong about that? And there is no one, right? It's quite clear. There is a lot to, uh, to fear on, both sides, and there were no good options available to us Americans in this election?
0: No, no, we, we've um, failed on any decent candidates for quite some time as well over here. Uh, so my main focus is obviously identity politics. Uh, that's the thing that got me, you know, 2015. Uh, I think the Charlie Hebdo, um, when that, that attack happened, in January 2015 and people, some of my friends on the left was like, wow, they did draw a cartoon. (laughs) Like they've been gunned down in their place of work and people were making excuses, like reasonable, intelligent, rational people. And it was the same when there was a protest, I think it was in Holland uh, about also about a cartoon um, or drawing of the prophet Muhammad. And so um, I knew things were on the turn and then come uh, about May that year, I saw what was happening with the whole trans issue. Um, And I wonder whether now Biden is president. No, let me correct that. If Biden becomes president in 2021 and you've had the four years of Trump, which may have through responses and the pendulum swing um, may have caused people to wake up a little bit but he's also been a monster that people can focus on. So actually they can ignore loads of the stuff that's happened because they can just say Trump. And then that's, that's all their evil in one little basket. If Biden becomes president, will those people be able to divert their eyes away from a monster and start seeing some of the bad things that are actually happening, or is it going to remain unnoticed and keep slipping through and just going to get so much worse?
1: Well, this is uh... My biggest fear is that a blue victory, which I fully expect to be what comes out of this, uh, will result in a large number of people who are currently awake because of Trump going right back to sleep. And that means the entrenched influence peddlers, and yes, I'll say it, the deep state, are going to go back to doing what they do, which is so dangerous in the long term. So yes, I would love to see people remain awake And think about, you know, I mean, all sorts of people are telling me, we have to get Trump out of office before we talk about any of this other stuff. Now, I don't think that's the right position. But let's just say, okay, that appears to have happened. Now let's talk about the other stuff the way you said we should, right? Now we have to talk about the influence peddling on both sides. And the fact that Somebody has quietly unhooked the democratic influence in our system and replaced it with something unaccountable and difficult to describe, and that is unacceptable.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I just find it unbelievable that people defend slicing off the healthy breast tissue of teenage girls uh, in your country and mine. Um, and I kind of think if you can get to that point, where an entertainment program shows a boy who has been transitioned since the age of three as entertainment, and he is revered as, as a hero um, with Jazz Jennings. Uh, I think all bets are off for how bad everything can really get.
1: Yes, uh, I was just discussing this with some friends yesterday. My feeling is the, it is now the state weighing in to um, the parental influence over a child's development, over their own child's development, in this case is so horrifying that it is an indictment of any process that could create it. In other words, it is a parent's obligation to protect their child from dangerous influences, from dangerous flights of fancy, from anything that will come back to haunt them over the long-term. It is, it is a built-in biological obligation to protect a child and to have the state weigh in on uh, what is very likely to be a temporary desire on the part of a child and say, actually, not only is this desire effectively evidence of something permanent, but also so clearly evidence of it that it warrants permanent medical intervention is so frightening. It is effectively the biological equivalent of two plus two equals five, right? And it's hard to imagine that we had a recent battle on social media over whether or not two plus two might actually equal five, but this is effectively that teleported into biological space.
0: I've got friends who say, I don't agree with you. And I said, well, what, what don't you agree with that? We should alter children's bodies. And then I "Oh, I don't want to talk about it. I said, but, but you have to take yourself to the place of agreement, disagreement. You have to at least know what you're saying and what you're supporting. And that goes across with everything. And this lack of, um, debate that." uh, is upon us now that you can't disagree with things that actually you can just be silenced and shut up. Uh, that sometimes I don't even think people know what they're supporting because they haven't had that conversation with themselves.
1: Yes. Somehow it's a failure of the very idea of belief and the, uh, connection it is supposed to have to logic. In other words, this doesn't even require a counter argument, it is self-evidently insane that a child born with normal biological structures should be encouraged to surgically alter them on the basis of a psychological belief that is obviously not inherently permanent. That's not to say that there won't be some trans people who know that they're trans very early in life and are consistent about it. But the number of counterexamples is so large that we know that this isn't an an inherent indicator of a deep permanent state. What we know is that we don't know and that we have an obligation to leave an intact child in their intact state until they're an adult and are in a position to say, yes, actually, this is permanently how I feel because children Mm -hmm. embrace all kinds of notions as part of growing up. They're not supposed to know and their parents are supposed to protect them from uh, temporary flights of fancy.
0: Well we mentioned the infantilization of the of society and these kids that don't seem to grow up and it's very interesting on many levels uh, with my own children uh, and seeing how their friends are treated or how school policy works with discipline. On the one hand we don't allow them to walk home from school, we don't ha- allow them to have responsibility when it comes to the way they treat other people, uh, the, the rules that they may or may not um, have to stick to, but then we give them the ultimate autonomy and blame over whether or not we disrupt their developing bodies. And the two things are so, pe- it's so peculiar that at the same time, someone would say, I won't let my daughter uh, walk home, but she can consent to taking puberty blockers which will eradicate her sexual function as an adult. It's just bizarre.
1: Well, like so many of the things in uh, this milieu, it is the inversion of reality. In general, it is understood in the West that parents have broad latitude to raise children in homes with a wide range of values. And we only allow the state to intercede When it is unambiguous that something parents are doing is destructive of the child. And here, we're going to prevent parents from interfering with actual destruction of the child's functioning systems on the basis of a belief that is not held by the parents. And, Mm. you know, again, that is not to say that some kids who say, hey, I'm trans, aren't going to turn out to actually be trans. Some will. But Unless that number is 100%, we're talking about damaging actual human beings in a permanent way that no child could possibly understand the implications of on the basis of a claim that might, you know, might not last a month.
0: Well, I remember only about five years before that reading about the cases where severely uh, disabled children were given puberty blockers because the prospect of a... um, 13-year-old severely disabled girl having periods would be uh, really deeply distressing for them. And people are like, well, no, that's their body. It's their human right. You can't interfere. And then just five years later, we're, we're, we're doing this to children and you guys are so much worse, I think, because, or it's so much uh, easier to access this medicine because there's so much money in, in medicine, whereas we have a finite resource um, which people may or may not think is a great thing to have the NHS, but this is one thing that it's fortunate in, in stopping.
1: Interesting. Well, yes, uh, we could go deeply into all the interconnected dysfunction, but, uh, yes, our, um, lack of any kind of universal healthcare and its interplay with this is um, interesting. So yeah, the uh, NHS is protective, I guess. Maybe maybe that's an argument for for having such a thing.
0: Well, going back to the excitement of um, a potential civil war uh, in uh, 2021, what do you think is going to happen to all of the groups that have been kind of anti-Trump on the streets? Um, is there energy used up or are they going to find someone else to pick on?
1: this is this is uh, one of the most frightening things about it. So uh, some of the people in the street are actually motivated by Trump and presumably they will be less motivated as he leaves office. But a large fraction of this had nothing to do with Trump and Trump was a useful excuse. But uh, there's no reason to think it's going to go away. I would expect it to change forms. But what we have is a huge movement that has discovered it has immense power. Mm. Game theoretically, it doesn't make any sense to expect that to go away. Now, the question is, I believe that movement has been cynically um, emboldened by the DNC, the Democratic right. Party's corrupt core. And it has done that for reasons that involve nothing more complex than continuing its influence peddling racket, right? It's going to uh, partner with the, uh, the woke ideology in a cynical attempt to deflect the blame that it has rightly earned for the American dysfunction. But there's no guarantee that the DNC actually is in control of that relationship, and I suspect they aren't. So having emboldened this movement, I am concerned that it will wield a great deal more power than the DNC anticipates, and that that could have uh, any level of bad consequence going forward. Oh
0: God, can you imagine? Uh, imagine they turn on the DNC, which I'm sure, um, considering they've turned on everybody else who uh, previously held similar beliefs, I can't see that that wouldn't be something that they would relish in doing.
1: Uh Almost anything could happen, Um, but let's just say I believe we had an obligation, all of us who understood how broken and naive and dangerous this ideology was, had an obligation to uh, prevent it from gaining access to the levers of power and instead um, seeing it utilized as a pawn in a political battle about something else was a very dangerous error. But, I guess we'll see.
0: Um, how do people access, uh, the truth? Because, I don't, journalism seems to be, um, so over in bias and narrative, so it's not so much about stories that, that are written that have biases, it's more about an agenda, shapes, what people even cover. Um, so, how do people even know anymore uh, who's telling the truth?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I can think of two mechanisms. Neither of them are great, but they certainly work better than you know, turning on the TV or looking at the internet and just seeing what pops up. One is to try to correct for the bias of <clears throat> one source with a source biased in the other direction. So very frequently, uh, I and many others will flip between sources that have inverse biases in order to just simply neutralize the effect that is otherwise so hard to spot. The other thing you can do, maybe more usefully, is you can figure out who is trustworthy. Now, nobody is trustworthy entirely at the level of their understanding. We are all dealing with a very noisy environment in which it is impossible to really understand the full breadth of what is going on. But you can find people who will tell the truth as best they understand it and will seek the truth with all of the tools available. If you find those people and you pay attention to the conclusions that they have reached and you pay attention to what they do when they disagree with somebody else you would put in that category, you can get a pretty good sense of you know, at least the baseline. Now, the problem is this election has actually caused people who under ordinary circumstances would do that to reject people that they would ordinarily trust. So I would argue if somebody that I have understood to be trustworthy in this way comes up with a conclusion that I am sure is wrong, I do not leap to the conclusion that they have lost their mind. (laughs) What I do is I become agnostic and I look at them and I say, are they as wrong as I think they are, or have I not yet seen something that they know, right? I want to know which of those two things it is, because it certainly has to be one of them. And if people were to do that more frequently, I think many of the people who are so certain that um, the, the last election revealed a stark choice, and that the good people all went one way, those people would be in a very different place if they, if they went through that exercise. And I'm, I'm uh, shocked and horrified to see that they're not doing. Mm.
0: So do you think Trump was right to um, accuse uh, the mainstream media of fake news?
1: Well, is fake news a massive and dangerous phenomenon? Absolutely, that's undeniable. Um, I don't necessarily want to embrace Trump's accusation of fake news because if I have a deepest criticism of Trump, it's that he politicizes everything, Mm -hmm. right? It's something he's very good at and he will take an issue that absolutely must be kept above the fray and politicize it nonetheless. So um, my sense is, yes, he's right that we have a rampant fake news problem. Why is he saying it? He's saying it because it provides advantage to say it, and he would say it even if it weren't true. So, in some sense, I'm forced to discount his claim of fake news because I think it's uh, it's political, and it just happens to also be right.
0: Yeah, it is a shame that some of the <laughs> some of the uh, like his his uh, dealings with China, um, his, the fact that he reinstated some of the Title line protections. All of those things uh, are the right things. Um, I have no doubt they they were done um, not necessarily for the right motives.
1: Cynically, yeah, that, that's that's my sense too. Which is it's you know it's a tragedy of Shakespearean <laughs> proportions, but uh, but nonetheless, that's where we are.
0: When it comes to uh, America, and now that there is uh, so many. Kind of tangible things that are now not considered true you know you can basically hold something in your hand and pretend you're not you're not holding it um is it is it the beginning of um the cohesion just completely slipping away do you think people are going to start reaching hands across the aisle to maybe political opponents but people who are willing to speak the truth, like you and I both might disagree on something, but both of us were speaking from a good faith, truthful, rational position. Do you think those people will will sort of rise to the top, if you like?
1: Well, I, I think we already know the answer to this. We, we see it. And as somebody who has rejected both parties and been very vocal about it, uh, maybe my position is is unique here. But the... There is a large number of people, which is a tiny percentage of the population, who will do what you're saying and already are doing it. And actually, the result of that is fascinating. I'm in a number of different groups where uh, people are on every political side of these issues. And what's most surprising is that where people stand on these issues is actually not central to the question. In other words, who you voted for is irrelevant because everybody understands the brokenness of the system is primary and that reasonable people can disagree in a broken system, and it doesn't mean anything about their moral character. But what's going to happen on the larger stage and is already happening is that uh, the concept of unity, for lack of a better one, is going to be politicized and abused, and it is already it is already across the landscape. So, um, you may or may not know I started the uh, the Unity 2020 project to attempt to capture the White House uh, with a uh, a non uh, an apolitical non ideological team for, in the hope of rescuing the system. Well, that didn't work, but this concept of unity did resonate. And whether by accident or through some other mechanism, Unity is now the Uh, the battle cry of the blue team, right? But what they mean by it is not really reaching across the aisle. What they mean is that all of these factions, essentially blue factions, should unify in order to deal with the red devil, which, you know, it's the opposite of unity, dressed up as unity. But I guess in the era of irony, one should have expected that.
0: (laughs) Well, I came from the left, so I was a confirmed lefty right until probably about 2016, 2017, when I asked the question to the left, uh, can my 11-year-old daughter assume to have the right to go in a female-only space and not see an adult penis? And I was met with accusations of bigotry, transphobia, raising a pervert, and so on. And so I swiftly fell out of love with the left. But the bizarre thing is, so I talk to women, um, you know, even uh, pro-life right-wing Christians in America, who um, don't like Trump, but definitely vote Republican. And because I talk to those people, the people on the left won't talk to me, even though I've come from the left. And it doesn't happen to those women on the right, not in any way, shape or form, which I find quite staggering.
1: Yeah, it's a um, a shocking asymmetry. And I am also of the left. I would still say I'm very much on the left, but. Being on the left, I find most of the people on the left um, completely um, unsympathetic. I guess I mean that in both senses of the term. I don't recognize them. I don't see them as progressive in the least, quite the opposite. I don't believe the things that they believe. But I, uh, the reason I say that I'm on the left is that I think we face a situation in which our current structures are so far out of phase with the problems that we need to solve that we must we must engage in radical change in order to save ourselves and our system. Now, I don't say that lightly. Radical change is dangerous and one should never um, go into it with the expectation that things will be wonderful because uh, if you engage in radical change, you are sure to create phenomena you don't anticipate and one has to be wary of that. But in any case, I would say um, the small number of us who recognize the need for an upgrade to civilization software and are therefore by definition some kind of progressive, but don't recognize the delusional thinking uh, on the current mainstream left as in any way connected to what we believe, actually have to start a new and different left, what I call your other left. So we're over here on your other left and uh, you're probably one of us. So, uh, you know, come find
0: us. <laughs> we, um, uh, I was thinking about what you said with um, the left and the right and, and you've experienced it the same that, that you're not allowed to talk to the right and the left get very cross. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, only I, um, put on a talk called Woke News with a chap called Ollie Lambert, who's a filmmaker. He's an award-winning documentary filmmaker. And when he was researching a programme called uh, Trans Kids, We Need to Talk, he um, couldn't get anybody on the, yes, we think trans and kids is great, to talk to him at all. And in fact, he said he had more issues uh, making that than when he looked at the Palestine, <laughs> Israel, conflict because both sides were so sure that they were right, they wanted to tell everybody exactly what they thought. Um, Do you think that is what it is with the left? Do you think it's a fear that they're not right or do you think it's, uh, what do you think it is?
1: I don't think it's a conscious fear that they're not right, but I think in some sense they are a movement that ironically enough, given the core beliefs inside of postmodernism, They're a movement that is really about power and isn't about reality. And they aren't wrong that they've become powerful, they have. Um, But the way one maintains and augments that power is to police the narrative. So defections from the narrative and uh, instances that prove the narrative is false have to be driven out of sight so that people don't realize that these claims are just simply as preposterous as they sound. So what's happening is you're getting all of the authoritarian instincts that have shown up so many times in history, showing up in a context you don't expect them. Um, But that's what they are. Policing the narrative is key to its continuing to gain power and marshal it. And, um, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes this is a rhyme with things we've seen before in different contexts, and we ought to treat it with the same seriousness.
0: Mm. I saw a video on uh, Facebook, I think it was a TikTok where a young girl, now I didn't watch the whole of the video, video, so I really have no idea whether her parents were racist, but she decided to film a discussion with her parents, accusing them of being racist and put it on TikTok. And I just, everybody was saying, oh, she's so great, isn't it great? And I was like, no, it's awful. Um, whether her parents are racist or not is immaterial. To To get children to gain attention, likes, notoriety, for basically shaming their parents is grotesque.
1: And where have we seen that before, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's reminiscent of, of China. It's re- reminiscent of East Germany. There's all kinds of places where this kind of behavior has happened. And the question is... Uh, do we want to be added to that list, right? The, the list of, of horrifying tragedies of history that starts with this kind of nonsense is large and we could be added to it if we say, well, this must be different because in some sense we are different, right? No, this is something very deep. It's a game theoretic pattern. It emerges when you don't tend to the important structures of society and that's where we find ourselves.
0: Do you think we really could get there? Do you think we really could be um, looking at something as humongous and catastrophic as what's happened in places like China?
1: Well, I don't want to say that I think that's going to happen. I think it is very important that we recognize that we are somewhere on what may well be a slippery slope in that direction. And that it is of the utmost urgency that we divert ourselves so we don't end up there. But could it happen? Oh, absolutely, I have no doubt.
0: About a few years before Brexit, I remember saying to someone, and they were reflecting on what happened in uh, sort of Eastern Europe. And I just said, that that sort of unrest could never happen in, in the UK. We could, that could never happen. Like we, we don't really protest. We're quite lazy. We're never going to block. Um, Uh, the shipping ports and whatever and then here we are just a few years later and you had a mass uh, vote where the working class essentially and people that felt they were not listened to uh, wanted their voices heard and I can't really see them shutting up now.
1: Yeah I think one just simply has to track it's very hard to maintain your previous mindset There's a reason that we update and we just simply become accustomed to what is now true and we forget what was once true. But the number of things that are inconceivable from a vantage point of 10 years ago that are now just simply facts is staggering. Right? If you told me as a biologist that we were actually going to be fighting that people would be deplatformed for claiming that there was a fundamental biological difference between (laughs) men and women, I would have said, you're nuts, we can fight around a lot of stupid things, but that's so secure biologically speaking, there's no possible way that that could come unglued and yet it's unglued. So um, we 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 are in a realm that should be setting off alarm bells every five minutes. And for some of us it is, but the number of us for whom it isn't is really the story. That's the thing to be most frightened about is that to many people, the transition from a world in which men and women were two different things to a world in which they are claimed to be the same thing uh, is actually all in keeping.
0: Mm. It's a very
1: frightening thing.
0: In the United Kingdom, it does seem to be a luxury. Some of these uh, more um, gender, uh, gender identity stuff and identity politics is It's sort of a a place where people who aren't worried about losing their jobs um, or in a position where their lives are relatively precarious and their safety is precarious, so they're maybe not right at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They don't seem to be far so infected by this stuff. But it's almost like there's an inverted triangle at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's it's not very nice.
1: No, I I agree with this, and I also find that... You know, I I tend to be very bold about sharing what I actually think. So I live in Portland and, you know, well, one doesn't know what's going to happen if you confess to believing, for example, that that Joe Biden is actually a lethal danger and that it's not clear that uh, riots won't get worse if he takes office. But what I find is that although people very frequently say things that suggest that they believe this ideology, that if you um, take the first step and you, you suggest that there's reason for skepticism of it, very frequently you will find that the person on the other side has skepticism too. And one thing that's very clear is that people who have jobs in which they engage the physical world, plumbers, electricians, pilots, you know, people who, when they think stupid stuff, bad things happen, those people aren't fooled by this. And people who run businesses, they're not fooled by this. Now, it turns out, apparently, that people in on the boards of major corporations will at least speak as if they see these things as correct. But those who are, um, in some sense, struggling in a difficult puzzle to keep a business afloat or having to actually get the lights to come on when you flip the switch, they're too practical to be sucked in by these preposterous claims. And I think that that's an important clue to what's happening. This is Mm. largely a mental disorder of people whose lives are entirely social and abstract.
0: Mm. We have, um, so even though you can get a GRA, which is a gender recognition, um, sorry, GRC certificate in this country, uh, which is an indefinable thing. Nobody's decided what gender might be in law. It just is something. Uh, that trumps biological sex but actually if you're royalty or if you're um, important enough to have a title you cannot transition into receiving that title which basically means women can't transition into being men and then claim the title or um, become uh, it's changed now for the the king and the queen because you can be a a second born daughter a first born daughter and still become uh, the monarch so it's, uh, it's just really interesting that these people will tell you in power that they genuinely think people can be a different sex than they were born, um, but actually when it comes to the most powerful, it doesn't really impact them whatsoever.
1: That's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. That's fantastic. Wonderful that there is some sort of stopgap that just so happens to protect royalty from coups of gender. Oh, my goodness, you've made my day. Um, <laughs> no, really, I, you know, I, I didn't even think to wonder about it. But um, now that you say it, of course, there would be, of course. So yes, that, that really uh, puts the lie to the whole thing, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, because actually it's just another way of stopping women from, from taking the money. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, I, I meant to ask you in your, in your other variety of discussions where you're looking at different ways of politics, um, how, are there lots of women in those spaces?
1: In which spaces?
0: So in, you said some of the groups where you're looking oh, at yeah. sort of reaching across the aisle and, and, and those sort of more rational ways of dealing with the world. Are there, is it disproportionately men or is it nicely mixed?
1: That's a good question and I should actually count, but I would say it is at least close enough that I don't know the answer offhand. Nice. It is certainly uh, well mixed and it, you know, uh, if you told me that you had uh, counted heads in these groups and it turned out that it was female biased, I wouldn't be shocked.
0: Oh, nice. That's great to hear because some, um, even within this movement over here in the UK, (laughs) women are talked over. And it's, I never wanted to admit this stuff. Uh, I don't ever want to be one of those whining women who sits there and says, uh, I need to speak because I've clearly always created some sort of place where I can speak. But uh, I am alarmed by the overt sexism of this sort of woke movement where you've got a man, you know, going to a pro-life protest who kicks a woman in the face. <laughs> and it's okay because she's anti-abortion, so who cares about her?
1: Well, I would say in the, uh, the ranks of the ones I would call the truly awake, um, this is not an issue, but it's not to say that there's not something that had to be navigated. So when okay. I was a professor, um, very early in my getting the job and learning how to do it, it became clear that there was a dichotomy in every room. There were people who were very comfortable breaking into conversations, and there were people who required a pause in order to break into a conversation. And if you just let the the discussion go, one group dominates and the other is never heard from. So you actually have to physically, physically, you have to socially alter the room so that there is an inherent pause that allows those in category B to get in. But it's not that hard to do. It's a very minor tweak. You just have to be aware that it's necessary. And so, you know, I, I think this is a great model for the situation we find ourselves in more broadly. My sense is that people from certain cultures and that people that males are more likely to have the skill of jockeying for a position to get into a conversation having nothing to do with whether or not they have more insight and should be uh, more present in the conversation. So what I want to see and what I have sought to create in spaces where I have the power to do it is an alteration of the culture that just levels the playing field so that 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 your style of discussion does not um, dominate your presence or the question of presence. But in some sense, this does mean that Uh, patterns of speech, patterns of interaction that might be seen as more male, that might be present in some ethnicities, that those things should be democratized, right? So, um, you know, in a a Jewish home, people are typically very comfortable pushing each other around at the dinner table, you know, it's all in, uh, it's all very collaborative, but the idea is yeah we hold each other to account, you know people are in, you know, they're passionate they they uh they have arguments and it's not personal and that that's a very useful mode of interaction and uh to the extent that it's something that anybody can learn, uh it's great and so it's something i I try to spread from the home I grew up in and to the extent that males may um, be historically more likely to advance an argument through pushback and, uh, you know, to eventually persuade people because of their persistence. Um, It is both necessary to deliver that skill more broadly, and it is necessary to remove the penalty because, of course, women who have engaged in this behavior have often been seen as, you know, somehow uh, brusque or pushy or something like that. So Mm. anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying that I do think another culture has broken out and that it um, it is highly diverse on all of the metrics that don't matter right? There are men and women, there are people of many different races and ethnicities, and they're interacting very productively, because they've, you know, sidelined whatever structural barriers might come through the door with one group or another, and they've learned how to interact in a cosmopolitan discussion space, and um, it would be great if it spread.
0: Well, I certainly have uh, been on the wrong side of... mm, I always think it's very female. Other people don't think it's a female way of handling things, but I, I feel that females um, conflict resolve by um, less straightforward manner, shall we say. So it would be ostracizing, ostracizing someone um, as opposed, and excluding them as opposed to head on direct. Um, and it's something that I try to teach my children you know, don't name call, but do name and label whatever it is that's happening. Uh, make sure you give it something, you know, give it a, a, a tangible something that you can describe, but you don't have to attack the person, but you do have to be able to label it. And I I wonder, because girls do this from tiny, really small little girls do the ostracizing and the um, constant auditioning as to whether or not they are good enough for the group. Uh, And just a final massive question, you can be as long or short as you like. Do you think that is innate or do you think it's nurture? Is it both? Can it be avoided?
1: Great question. And I do see these differences between boys and girls and between men and women. And I think they have a deep evolutionary meaning, but I wanna avoid the pitfall that trips people up in this regard. I see it everywhere. There is a belief that we are all handed and that we have to get past that things are either biological or cultural. This is a profound error. Culture is biological. Now, the reason that we often think that culture and biology are opposed is that ephemera, things that show up in culture all of a sudden, can have very little biological meaning whatsoever it is only long standing aspects of culture that have biological meaning that we can assume is present but the reason that we are so cultural is because our genetic biological selves made that possible because it enhanced their uh, power in the world in other words culture is a is a tool of our genes Now, that doesn't mean that we are obligated to do what our genes want. And as a biologist, I would counsel us to actually look deeply into what it is that our genes are trying to get us to do. And once you understand how frightening that is, resist. But my point to you would be this. If it is transmitted on a cultural channel, it is transmitted on a cultural channel for biologically important reasons from the past. It is alterable at a much greater degree if it is transmitted on the cultural channel, because culture is effectively the software. The genes are effectively uh, the programming of the hardware and the firmware. So the, the long and short of it is, the pattern you describe is not arbitrary. Females do this because in female space with female interests, it has made sense. It has been the useful strategy. In traditionally male space, something very different has unfolded. We are now in, for better or worse, a postmodern future landscape where none of those old patterns necessarily need to continue. We can reshuffle the deck and we should. Um, So yes, something like innate, which is not to say it is transmitted in the genes. It could be partially transmitted in the genes. It could be not at all transmitted in the genes, it could be entirely on the cultural side, but it is up for alteration. And I know that for sure, because uh, I would say the number of instances in which I have seen women excel with the toolkit that would traditionally have been understood to be male is so many, I couldn't possibly begin to count them. And that says, look, it's possible. So. Um, the question really is, for girls who pick up that pattern, is there a mechanism for at least creating a kind of bilingual nature or getting a transition to happen where in environments that have traditionally been male, let's say scientific environments, it may be necessary to have a culture in which confrontation is the mode of interaction because it actually results in progress by good ideas out competing bad ideas rather than exclusion, which is the process that you're describing, which may be a valid uh, mechanism in some environments, but doesn't necessarily work very well uh, to generate new hypotheses and test them. So I would say everything should be relegated to places where it is the functional mode and um, those tools that are useful in some environment that may not be traditional for one group of people or another, those things should be democratized.
0: Well, thanks very much. I'll pass that along to my daughter. And um, I'm going to say thank you so very much. I've kept you a really, really long time, but um, it's been an absolute joy. Thanks for joining me.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers. Well, I don't like blowing my own trumpet, but wasn't that great? Uh, so that's Brett Weinstein. Uh, it's If you want more information about the whole affair, it's Mike Naina, uh on YouTube. So that's Mike and then N-A-Y-N-A. And he does uh, Brett Weinstein, Heather Haying and the Evergreen Equity Council. It's a really good breakdown uh, and it should frighten you, but it's a really good breakdown of what happened. Really clear narrative there. Uh, so I do implore you to check it out. Um, As I said, Brett and Heather also have a podcast called The Dark Horse uh, and they talk, uh, you know, they're both intellectuals, they're both evolutionary biologists, but I have to say it's an enjoyable listen and it's um, very nice to hear a husband and wife who clearly still admire each other so much uh, talking about things that are accessible, if not uh, difficult ideas. So anyway, that's me. Uh, As a reminder, do remember to like, share and subscribe. And there are many ways to support this podcast Uh, that can be found at kellyj.com.